Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Join host Dan Ray, BU Law alum and WBC 1030 radio host in Boston for this edition of the BU Law Podcast. And welcome into this edition of the Boston University Law School Podcast. I am the aforementioned Dan Ray, your friendly host. I'm an attorney, also a Boston University Law School alumnus. I'm very proud of that. A longtime broadcast journalist uh, here in the Boston area. Worked in television for 31 years and also during that process uh, covered countless court cases, local, state, national. And now I uh, conduct a radio talk show every uh, evening, every weeknight from 8 to midnight on WBZ Radio, WBZ.com. Uh, you can listen to us if you're listening around the country. And many times we do deal with uh, some of the legal issues and sometimes even have the professors that we've interviewed on the podcast uh, on the show. My guest today is Professor Michael Moyer, the Michaels Faculty Research Scholar of Law at Boston University School of Law. Professor Moyer is a highly respected uh, professor for his work in intellectual property, patent, antitrust, and technology law. He has an SB degree from MIT as well as a JD and a PhD from the University of Minnesota, the Golden Golfers. He has served as an expert witness for the Federal Trade Commission on a merger case presenting issues related to patent licensing. Today's discussion centers around Professor Moyer's latest book, Patent Failure, How Judges, Bureaucrats, and Lawyers Put Innovators at Risk, which takes a hard look at the American patent system and why many innovators consider this system and the institutions created to protect patents complete failures. This book has been called Timely and Important, one of the best books on patent reform. Welcome, Professor Moyer. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me, Dan. Let's start with a bit of an overview. Um, patents, copyrights, trademark, trade secrets, uh, those concepts, I think, um, merge in the minds of many people, uh, lawyers and non-lawyers alike. You're right. Uh, they definitely do. So patents are one kind of intellectual property, and uh, they're the kind that's uh, directed most specifically to uh, invention. So uh, a patent is one of many tools that the government has to encourage innovation. And uh, a patent does that by giving roughly 20 years uh, of exclusivity to an inventor. Uh, And uh, in an ideal world, an inventor would come up with a new product, get a patent, and then be able to enjoy the exclusive opportunity to uh, make and sell that new product for that 20-year period. So that gives a reward to the inventor uh, to encourage the inventor um, to make all the investments needed to new move new products to the market. And after 20 years, all bets are off. You and I can swoop in and produce the same product and exactly. theoretically not worry about a lawsuit. Uh, and a, a copyright, which I know is, is not the subject of your book, but just to try to get it um, get it all squared away, sort of an expression of an idea. So that would deal with speeches, songs, and books and things like that? Right. The entertainment industry uh, is going to be most concerned about getting copyright protection. And uh, the distinction is um, between utilitarian creative works like inventions and um, entertainment or expressive uh, works um, like um, movies, music, uh, text. And, and are those lines of demarcation pretty clearly drawn? Or can you occasionally get something that is close to one, could either be both a patent or a copyright, or is it a fairly clear demarcation? Uh, it's usually 
clear, but uh, in the area of software, uh, software publishers can get a pretty strong protection through the copyright system and through the patent system at the same time. Um, different aspects of, of software are protected by the different regimes, but um, that's a, a setting where because software uh, feels like a literary work to some extent, it gets copyright protection and it feels to some extent like part of a machine, uh, it can also get protection under patents. All right, well, well, let's get to some of uh, some of the area that you're particularly concerned with. And then in your book, Patent Failure, uh, you write about the difference between inventions and tangible property uh, as, as being very important. What is the distinction between inventions and tangible property in the context of patent law? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the very title of the book is um, motivated by that, the answer to that question. Um, we think that the patent system, to a large extent, is failing to act like a property system. So if we take property rights in land, uh, something that makes property rights in tangible property work well is um, the clarity of boundary information. When um, I'm thinking about building an office tower, it's really unlikely that I'd make a mistake and accidentally build my office tower on your land. Um, I'll be able to steer clear of your property rights, build the office tower on my property, or if for some reason I want it on your property, I'd uh, get permission from you in advance. Uh, with intangible property, like inventions, it's possible to get clear lines drawn. It's possible to avoid mistakes, but it's a lot harder. So, you know, it seems pretty natural uh, to think that as um, you take something that's more abstract, like information, like an invention, it's going to be harder to make it work like property uh, because it's going to be harder to draw boundary lines. Is it possible that simultaneously two people working on two separate projects uh, without infringing on the ideas and the conceptual uh, development uh, that the other person is dealing with can simultaneously invent a, a, a new identical product? Oh, sure. It happens a lot. Um, I think that uh, we probably saw lots of people simultaneously coming up with the idea of selling uh, pet supplies on the internet back uh, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, there's pretty good evidence that several different people simultaneously came up with the idea of wireless email. Um, BlackBerry and, and the RIM company that makes BlackBerry, uh, they were the first ones to commercialize it. They got some patents, but other people got patents, um, and they had independently come to the same realization. So, so, let, so let's assume that we have two people, you know, one person in Boston and one person in, uh, in Los Angeles. They, they come to the same product. Is it then simply a race to the patent office? Um, they will generally both race to the patent office, although some innovators prefer to keep um, inventions secret. So if you go the secret route, you're kind of vulnerable because um, a patent right will end up being asserted against a trade secret holder. So uh, you've got to make a calculation. Do I think someone else is going to invent this, find out what I'm going to do, and assert their patent against me? If both parties decide to go to the patent office, 
uh, if they've truly got an identical invention, then one of them wins, one of them loses. And the loser, even if the loser was an independent inventor, uh, is going to be subject to the rights uh, of uh, the first inventor's patent. So the 20-year the 20 prohibition. So if there's, a, if there's a race between a patent and a trade secret, uh, it sounds to me as if the person who, uh, b- by virtue of the fact that trade secrets are not registered anywhere, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the patent registrant is always going to win over uh, someone who asserts it was a trade secret? Yeah, that's right. As long as... Even if you can prove the trade secret preexisted the registration of the patent? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's true. Um, the patent uh, owner, you know, of course, has to truly have been an independent inventor. And if that's the case, even if you are second in time, if you go to the patent office, get the patent, uh, you can assert it against the first inventor who held it as a trade secret. And that, that makes sense um, because um, the patent gives a disclosure to the world about how the technology works. Now, now, you write that the patent system that we currently have has rapidly deteriorated in recent years. Mm-hmm. What's, what has happened in recent years? Are technological advances just happening too quickly? No, I don't think so. You know, I think that's just par for the course. When you're talking about patents, you want a successful, durable patent system to always work well as new technology comes online. So we've seen technological revolutions in the past. Um, I think there are a couple of things that have happened in recent years. Uh, One is that there's been an explosion of software-related invention. And I argue that um, a technology like software is harder to propertize than a technology like chemicals or pharmaceuticals. Um, because it's relatively abstract, relatively intangible, it's a lot harder to draw the boundaries that we need. And I think there have been some unfortunate changes in the substance of patent law where the courts have de-emphasized clear boundaries and they've been pursuing other goals. So it's a combination of those two things um, has made the patent system on the whole move away from its moorings in, in property law. So was there a point in time when the patent system was really working well uh, at some point in the past? And, and Yeah, then... we think so. We, um, my co-authors, uh, Jim Besson and um, Jim and I um, have looked at the performance of various patent systems across countries, the American patent system and other systems over time. And, you know, looking back uh, across a historical record, looking across countries, and what we think we've seen is um, patents can work very well as property rights, and sometimes they work badly. It seems as if it's just hard to fine-tune this patent system and get it to work well as property. So 20 years ago, we think that the American patent system uh, overall was providing a subsidy to innovators. Uh, and we think in the last 20 years, it's um, deteriorated so badly that now it's actually a kind of a tax. Some inventors make pretty good money because of the patents they hold. But most innovators uh, end up fearing other people's patents, end up making payments because of other people's patents, payments that they couldn't have avoided 
they couldn't have planned in advance to, to work around. So, you know, it's a signal that um, patents in recent years, on average, haven't been working very well as property. So who's to blame here? Um, do, do we <laughs> uh, blame Congress? Is, is it the judges, uh, innovators well, themselves, or, yeah. or is there pl- plenty of blame to go around? Uh, well, don't blame patent law professors. I think, I think no, we're, we're going to exempt them yeah, at least yeah, during this we're, interview. We're doing all right. But um, when you look to innovators and, and their lawyers, um, you could blame them, but not too much. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm an innovator, if I'm a patent lawyer, um, it's in my interest or the interest of my client to get the broadest patent rights I can. And if those broad rights happen to be fuzzy, and if the law will let me get away with it, well, why not? So they end up um, getting broad yet fuzzy property rights, and they're happy at least as long as it's their patent they can assert against others. You know, if they think a little bit more about it, they might rue the fact that, uh, well, there are a lot of other folks out there that will use fuzzy property rights uh, from patents and assert them against against their invention. Um, The courts, as I said, I think have lost track of the need to have clarity in boundaries. Um, Congress has, for the most part, neglected the patent system, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I'd like to see Congress get a little bit more active today. Um, there's one interesting and kind of problematic development. Uh, a new line of business has developed in maybe the last 10 or 15 years that um, uh, people often call the, the business of trolling. Um, the story of the billy goat's gruff and, and the troll under the bridge is used to talk about people who are not inventors or innovators, but who somehow get their hands on patents and will hide waiting for a technology to be developed, waiting for innovation to occur. And then they jump up on the bridge and uh, collect a troll, uh, sorry, collect a toll. And that's sort of like the people who, um, if they think, for example, uh, you know, uh, Professor Moyer is going to run for Senate, hypothetically, they will, they will take the name Moyer uh, for Senate or, or whatever. They, the people who try to, uh, to, to, to grab, uh, you know, s- some of the, um, uh, the, the, you know, this is, I, I don't know, the, the, that would not be patents, I guess, but it would be, it would be similar to that because there have been political candidates who have been forced to pay money, uh, to individuals who hold the right to, uh, a particular, um, name. Like a know, domain like, name on a, on a, a domain website. name, right, right? Which I don't right. know if that gets into, into your area. That's a separate area. Uh, yeah, I, I know a bit about that. And uh, that's, um, sometimes called cyber squatting and, yeah, um, precisely. There, we've developed, I think, pretty effective trademark laws that um, discourage that. So you you do see that activity occurring, and yeah, I I, I see why you asked the question. It seems like there's a parallel here, um, and uh, I think in trademark law we've focused on that kind of abusive or opportunistic behavior and tackled it head on, and I think we do pretty well in discouraging it. Um, we haven't yet seen such um, a vigorous response to trolls, and that's because um, it's hard to draw the line, maybe harder to draw the line between 
bad faith registration of a domain name versus bad faith assertion of a patent. So that people I consider to be trolls, um, other sensible people would look at the same actions and say, well, no, you know, these are just um, maybe people that picked up patents from a failed entrepreneur and are cashing in some value. And the argument against me would say um, that, you know, if you can turn patents into value, uh, that's a, another source of incentive to, um, to startups or to um, entrepreneurs. You know, an entrepreneur says, I succeed, and that's great, but even if I fail, at least the patents I've acquired will have some value in the secondary market. We're talking uh, today to Professor Michael Moyer of Boston University Law School. He's written a book entitled uh, Patent Failure, How Judges, Bureaucrats, and Lawyers Put Innovators at Risk. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with a Professor Moyer and talk about perhaps some of the solutions that he proposes for the patent law system. We'll be back right after this. Located in Boston and steeped in 138 years of rich tradition, BU Law is number one in teaching quality, according to Leiter Law School rankings, and number three in the nation for best professors, according to Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872, and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Now back to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray, a lawyer, a veteran Boston broadcast journalist, and BU Law alum. Well, welcome back to this edition of the Boston University Law School Podcast. I'm Dan Ray. With me today is Professor Michael Moyer from the Boston University School of Law. And we are discussing a new book that he has written along with James Besson, Patent Failure, How Judges, Bureaucrats, and Lawyers Have Put Innovators at Risk. So I think we've sort of staked out, Professor Moyer, the problems Um what can be done to um, to perfect the patent system or maybe just get it back to where it was 20 years ago? We need to think about how we can deal with this problem of lack of boundary clarity. And um, there are some, I think, pretty simple and likely effective solutions. Um, and uh, maybe some other solutions that offer some promise might be a little bit more difficult to implement. But let's start out by um, observing that patent applications are secret for 18 months. Um, And that seems kind of strange uh, if you compare that to property rights and land. Um, So there's no period of secrecy um, that surrounds the documents about a transfer of land or other kinds of tangible property, uh, you know, that gets registered. So why not simply have immediate publication of patent applications? Um, We have um, a practice by many patent applicants of continually revising the claim language in their patents. The, The claim language is the part of the patent document that turns into the property right. And so that even after 18 months, when you get to see the patent, you don't get to see the final version of the patent. You might not get to see the final version of the patent for 10 years, 15 years. And so 
that continual hedging and revision of the property right is another really obvious problem. Uh, you would be right to say that there's a lack of transparency in the patent system. And property rights um, work better when there's transparency. You know, we want the world to have clear notice of what they can and cannot do. Um, we also need to simply reduce the number of patents that issue. There are so many patents out there, and the scope of the property rights contained in those patents is so hard to figure out that it ends up frustrating businesses, and businesses that would like to avoid infringement say that, you know, we just can't get a clear picture of the patent landscape. Um, let me give you one example. Um, I spoke to an insurer who works in the Lloyds of London syndicate, and for a while, he was offering insurance against the risk of being sued for patent infringement. He looked at the e-commerce space, and he said that if you want to start a new e-commerce business, you need to look at 10,000 patents before you can figure out if you're infringing. And if you think about paying maybe $20,000 per patent, you know, the cost of assessing the property rights that are relevant, you know, is just absurd. So um, we've tried in some ways to reduce the flow of patents in recent how, years. But How do you do that, though? I mean, if, if I show up at the patent office and say, I want to patent this, uh, is there some sort of standard or bar that I have to overcome before I'm allowed to register patents? Yes. Yeah, there's a standard that has changed a bit over time, and uh, we can use it to uh, strengthen the rigor of the patent system. That standard is called the non-obviousness standard. So this is, I think, pretty intuitive. The law says that not every new technology deserves a patent because some new technologies are just going to be inevitable. You know, the standard innovative activity of business without a patent incentive will produce a stream of improvements. And so we should reserve patents for more significant inventions. Now, that's always been the law, but how rigorous this standard is uh, changes over time. And needs, to, needs to be enforced, enforced more strictly. L let me ask you just one quick question, if I can. And, uh, and I'm sure some of our listeners are going to be wondering, okay, I get a patent in the United States. That's wonderful. How are my patent rights protected in the world? Um, pretty effectively, at least in the larger economies around the world. Um, you know, the, um, the emerging economies right now, Brazil, India, China, Russia, um, it's going to be a little bit tougher, but even there, you can get a reasonable amount of success. But if you want to protect your patent in Japan or protect your invention with a patent in Japan, Korea, Western Europe, uh, you'll be pretty effective. And we really have pretty much a, a global patent regime. But but again, some countries, the protections are, are, are less uh, than, than they are in, in other countries. The substance of the patent law around the world is pretty similar in every country. Um, the difference is the courts, you know, in um, outside of the most developed economies, courts, court systems are just a little bit harder to work with and a little bit less reliable. 
Well, Professor Moyer, thanks very much for being with us. The book is entitled Patent Failure, How Judges, Bureaucrats, and Lawyers Put Innovators at Risk. Uh, it is published uh, by Princeton Press. I assume it's available at bookstores as, as well as at Amazon.com. want to thank you very much, Professor Moyer, for taking time out of your day to um, discuss your book uh, that you co-author with James Besson. Thanks very much, Dan. Also, want to thank very much to our listeners. You can find all the editions of the Boston University School of Law on Legal Talk Network and the Boston University School of Law website, as well as in iTunes. So in the meantime, have a great day, everyone. Until next time, Dan Ray saying so long for now. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.